Thanks, guys. For the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a series on spirituality called Real Spirituality. And the first week, um, I talked a little bit about defining it from a biblical perspective. And the main point of that was just simply to say this, that spirituality from a biblical perspective as related to Christ isn't really about what our spirit is doing first. It's about the fact that there is a God who is spirit, who through his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, he's doing something in us. He is the subject, we are the object. We aren't both the subject and the object of spirituality. And therefore, what he is doing in us that is forming the character and will of God for us to act out in creation is the essence of real spirituality, not our feelings of transcendence, though they go along with it. Which means that we could, we could um, define it a little bit like this. That spirituality is that the spirit displays and forms in us God's character and will. That's what the, wor- the work that the Spirit is doing. He's displaying for us so that we can see it and be allured and drawn in by it, and our ma- imagination baptized by who God is, but also to form in us God's character and God's will. It is the work of the Spirit, and what He's forming in us is an obedience that is love worked out in the realm of mercy and justice. So, um, one of the reasons why this is worthwhile is that it's a work of the Spirit. So our memory verse is, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So you see that what the Spirit is doing is He's fulfilling God's good purpose. That's the point, right? And the reason why it's worthwhile for us to work really hard to engage in the sweaty business of real spirituality is actually because God is working. That's the only reason it's going to work. The reason we can work out our, our salvation with enough seriousness that we can sit, call it with fear and trembling is because God is working to form in us his will and character to bring us in line with his good purpose and to fulfill it in us, right? Um, what that means is, is that when we talk about like the spirit, a spirituality of transcendence, which is what most of the surrounding culture really means by that, is that the Spirit's work is more about forming the will and character of the transcendent God in us than about causing us to feel as though we're transcending. Which wraps around what we talked about last week. John Good was here with International Justice Mission. He was talking about how fundamental to spirituality is like caring about slavery in the world or justice or actions of mercy. And it's because the law, what the Bible calls the law, and to the extent to which there are just laws in our societies, law is love inscripturated as actions of mercy and justice that other people deserve from us. In that sense, law is spiritual and law is loving if it's true, merciful, and just law. So that God could say that obeying his law is loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others and ourselves. But if that's what God is doing, if God is forming his character and will in us, that's what spirituality really is, that the Spirit is doing that, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is if that's what the Spirit has been doing all along in the history of humanity, is that our legacy? That the, the legacy of humanity on planet Earth is merciful justice flowing from obedient love that displays the character and will of God. That's not the story the Bible's telling, right? Immediately after the fall, the first event that we hear about is a brother killing his brother because he's jealous about his economics and spirituality. And it didn't get much better from there. 
And so if we recognize the story the Bible's telling that one of the, the most fundamental problems in the world is our sinfulness, our hatred, our unwillingness to accept what we were created to be and what the creation is meant to be, and our raging against each other and raging against God, then on one level we can say about modern spiritualities, are we sure that us having transcendent feelings should be God's biggest priority? Maybe that should—maybe his priority should be to take his creations and realign them with his purpose in creation so that that would align us with his will and character. So the question then is, how would he do that? If it's, if it's God that's working, but we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, how does that work? How does God's will and character get instilled in humanity if it doesn't just naturally happen? And the language we'll use for this series um, is by what you could call a means of grace, right? A means is something by which you accomplish something, right? A vehicle, a channel, a mechanism, or some kind of instrument. So something by which you get something done. My car was the means by which I got to church today, right? And grace is something that is freely given out of the generosity of somebody else that you don't deserve and you have no right to. So us being redeemed, us being transformed spiritually into people who are like Christ, who embody the character will of God, we don't deserve that. We have no claim to it. And so what, what, what our job is, if we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, is to know that God is already working, that is, graciously, and he does it in certain ways, and he's spoken and shown those ways in which he does it. And so God has certain means of grace, ways in which he gives us his favor in order to meet us, reach us, and transform us. And we need to know what those are. Right, so God's means of grace, that is the channels that God normally uses to give us gracious help in forming us in his character and will, are there's three main ones if you read through the whole Bible and you put it all together. Hearing his voice, having his ear, and belonging to his people. Those, that's what we're going to do the next three weeks. Today is hearing his voice. Next week is going to be having his ear. Pastor Lloyd is going to preach. And then the third week is belonging to his people. And we've, we've basically used the outline of this book, Habits of Grace, by David Mathis. I've read five or six books on means of grace and spiritual disciplines, and this is the most readable for a normal person, yet comprehensive and really helpful that I've read so far. Anybody can read this. A kid can read this and get a lot out of it. And I'd really encourage you, if, you have, if you've never explored this and you feel like you need a book to help you explore it, um, it's, a, it's a good one to look at. So— if God has means of grace, ways that he, he's chosen and spoken and shown that he gives us that favor and help, then what we need are habits of grace that get us under the faucet of that way he gives us his grace. We need habits of grace that we're doing, that we're doing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we're doing it in response to what God has already shown us he's doing. Does that make sense? That's why it's faith. God says, this is how I give you that help. And we go, Awesome. And when it comes to hearing God's voice, you can simplify what we need to know about this just in that sentence. You need a habit of hearing God's voice. You need some kind of habit in your life or numerous habits in your life in which you position yourself to receive what God has spoken and shown about himself so that the Spirit can use that to form the will and character of God in you. And you never, you never will graduate from that. So in order to kind of figure out what that might look like, um, we can go back to a previous question, which is, wait, if the legacy of human beings is what it is, like, when did we find out about this? Like, at what point 
could we know? When did God speak and show that this was integral to us not living typically? Because we're all going to live normal lives. Okay, listen, we're all normal people. Okay? I don't know of any movie stars that go here or people with IQs north of 250. Okay? Like, we're all— Relatively speaking, going to have a universal human experience of life. We're going to do things like work at jobs, love people, have friendships, manage our money, get sick, have interests. We're going to be normal, but, but we don't have to be typical if that's typical. Right? So how do we do that? If throughout the story of humanity, that's what human beings have been like— but if at the same time, God hasn't waited till now to tell us, then what has he told us all along? And if, if we look, God actually told people very early what makes the difference. What can make a person that's going to live a normal life not live a typical life? So that they actually, like, receive the favor of God through his spirit, working his will and character in us, through the ways that God gives us his grace, right? So look at a couple of these passages. So when God brought the people of Israel together and he was taking them in a certain direction, he gave them a law, like he told them stuff. And then he said this about it. He said, listen, Israel, you need to be careful to obey so that things can go well with you and that you can increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey. Why that phrase, flowing with milk and honey? Milk and honey are things that come out of stuff that you can't earn. Bees just make it. There's flowers that just grow, and bees just make it. And he's like, there's just honey everywhere. And you're like, honey, honey's good. Like, nobody doesn't like honey, right? And milk just like, cows just, they just make, they just lactate, you know? It's just, just make milk. You can't, you just give them some water, they eat some stuff, and it's, that, that is, there was a, the prosperity that God was promising is gracious. Right? I mean, he says another place, you didn't even build the cities you're going to live in. Right? And he says, that's what I want to give you. But he says this, you need to listen. Right? He says, hear, O Israel, listen to what I'm telling you. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? So how do you be careful to obey everything God commanded? So that he can graciously give us what he longs to give us. The first is, is that you need to know what he's like. He's one. He is the one God. And what we're, what we're here to do is we're here to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, right? That's not what people normally do. So how are we going to be that kind of person? If we're really listening, he says, and this is what he says, these commandments that I give you, that's the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible, these commandments that I gave you, I give them to you today are to be on your hearts. That is, you're supposed to think about them. You're supposed to know them. You're supposed to feel them. How do you get there? How do you become the kind of person that obeys because you love God, because what he's told us about himself, we feel. And he says, this is what you do. You need to impress them on your children. You need to talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. You need to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And you need to write them on the door frames of your house. That is, you need to put them everywhere. Remember, at this time in history, people couldn't afford books. Like a single book would be today hundreds of dollars, if not more. 
because you had to write everything on hand on handwritten on scrolls. At this point in history, you had to like weave plants together to make the stuff you'd write on. And so people didn't have Bibles. And so they had to hear the word, they had to remember it, they had to talk about it, they had to recite it to each other, they had to talk about it with their children's, their children's. Right? It was their job to impress it on their kids. But then the verse after that where it says, impress it on your children, talk about them. Them is the commandments. It's not talk to them, it's talk about them. That is, it's not just to your children you're supposed to talk about this stuff constantly. He's saying whenever you're with anybody, including your children, but whenever you're with anybody, talk about them when you're walking and sitting. And that is, people who believe and want to have God's commands on their heart, they talk about them with other people freely. That doesn't mean you have to be so, quote, religious that all you can talk about with other Christian people is all just the commands of God. But Jesus and the gospel and the commands of God and the words of, word of Scripture should be able to come up in conversation as easily as whether aches and pains or sport hopes. Right? There's another passage in Deuteronomy 17 where God says, listen, at some point you're going to go into the land and you're going to want a king like everybody else. But kings are terrible things. And so when you do that, here's what you need to tell the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or take many wives or accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. He's to remain humble. Now how on earth does somebody with extreme executive power stay humble? To where he could have lots of silver and gold, but he just isn't going to take it for himself. He could have lots of wives, but he's just not going to have lots of wives. And he could acquire for himself armies and horses and chariots, but he's just not going to. That's not normal. And he says, this is what you're supposed to do. When he ascends, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Right? The law is like 200 pages long. So every king of Israel ever— was required to pay whatever it costs to get a scroll, a blank one, and to go to the priest and get a copy of the law, and to get out a quill and ink and write out every word of the law himself. That is, he had to be literate. He had to have good enough handwriting he could read, and he had to write it out every word for himself. And then it says, he said, it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers. See the idea? If he realizes that God is God and that the commandments and the law are for everybody, including kings, he will never get in his sense the idea of the divine right of kings and I can do what I want because I'm God's special person. Right? He'll never get in his mind that he doesn't have to do these things and he'll never get in his mind that what is God going to do? And that's the only way a king is not going to accumulate horses, money, and women. And it's the only way he's going to rule justly. And he's the only way he's not going to think he's better than you. It's the only way you have a prayer at that. How? If he attends to the word. Only if every single day after copying it out himself, he reads what God has spoken and shown about himself, and he takes it seriously. After they had conquered and came to the land, this is the, this is one of the first verses of the, first verses of the whole book of Joshua. He starts with the people, he's like, we're going to go do all this stuff, but here's what we need to realize. This is what's going to mark our experience together. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Don't stop talking about it, but meditate on it. Think it over and think it through and work it through day and night. 
One of the big themes of the Bible is people laying awake at night, not worrying about their health, but thinking about things God said about himself. So that you may—why? What's the result? So that you can be careful to do everything written in it, so that you can be prosperous and successful. And in the whole history of Israel, of all the kings they ended up having, they only really had one that was any good throughout multiple decades. And it was the one who wrote the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And the whole psalm is about David saying, how I love your decrees because they're wise. How I love your laws, God, because they open up places of freedom for me and help me understand the world as it is, and how they change my heart, and how they confront me the way I need it. It's <coughs> the longest chapter in the Bible is basically the only king of Israel that ever did what he was told. And the result of it was he adored God because he adored God's word. And he didn't see in the law this religious, these religious rules he had to do. He saw the character and will of a divine person who had such beautiful character that his heart was captured in loving allurement and his appetite for the things of God continually expanded. Now, he didn't do it all right. But tell you what, his reign was markedly different. And for generations, God said, because of David, I will do these things. Because of David. Right? Let me give you a, a real-time example of this. I have a friend named Christopher who lives in Colorado. Um, we became really good friends when we were in seminary. He was only there like a semester, um, and then went to Oxford and was a journalist and did some other things. And um, uh, this last um, week, he found out that he has a kind of lymphoma. He's, he's like a year and a half older than me. He's like 40. And— um, he, he, we were, I've been praying for him. I, he told me his diagnosis and stuff like that. He sent me an email this week, and when I got it, I was like, Christopher, can I share this to the church? Because this is exactly what I'm going to be talking about. And you you just did it without being prompted when you have cancer. Like, they, and he was like, absolutely, just use it. So this is the email he sent me. I want you to see that he, he hasn't just been reading the Bible. He's been doing more than that. He says, for now, I'm mindful of all those active verbs in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Join me in rejoicing at the good news that I received today. Please continue to pray without ceasing for my full healing and for excellent medical care. And finally, let us give thanks to the Lord's provision for my daily bread. Now, you see what he did there? He didn't just read for Thessalonians. He read it, and he observed in that verse the voice of the verbs in it. Noticing that all of them were active, saying, do this. Don't just believe in it. Do it. Rejoice. Don't just believe in rejoicing. Don't just read on the page rejoicing. Rejoice. You who have cancer, rejoice. Be thankful. Right? And pray. And so then he invites me. He goes, Nick, let's—while I have cancer, let's you and I rejoice. Let's you and I pray. Let's you and I thank God, right? And then he says, he says, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer linger with me. So now he's reading somebody, reflecting on the Bible, so he can understand God's will for him better through their reflection. And he's reading an author who himself was killed by Nazis, who himself suffered through all these sufferings of trusting God, 
in worry and in hurt so that he can benefit from not just the words of scripture But what god the spirit did in the life of somebody who believed those same words of scripture for him at this moment Bonhoeffer said every new morning is a new beginning for our life Every day is a completed whole The present day should be the boundary of our care and striving matthew 6 34 jesus says every day has enough worry of its own, right? It is long enough for us to find God or to lose God, to keep the faith or to fall into sin and shame. God created day and night so that we might not wander boundlessly, but already in the morning we may see the goal of the evening before us. As the old sun rises new every day, so the eternal mercies of God are new every morning. See what he's saying? So Bonhoeffer is quoting the Bible in relationship to his own suffering— in relationship, and he's now connecting it in his own meditation with First Thessalonians, who Bonhoeffer doesn't quote, to say, I can rejoice and pray and thank God, recognizing that God's mercies and grace are new every morning, and I can see the end for which I strive, and that is enough to worry about today, and I can find peace in this, and God will help me. That is very different from reading a few verses and closing the book. And this is what the Lord was talking about when he said, Israel, listen, and press these on yourselves. Talk about them when you walk around. Bind them to yourselves and nail them up everywhere you walk. Surround yourself and fill yourself with them. Because hearing God's voice, embracing what God has spoken and shown about himself is one of the main means the Spirit uses to form us into the will and character of God. And therefore, one of the main ways that God makes us what we were created to be and through which we really experience the transcendence of knowing him. Right? So how do we do that? How do we actually have a habit of grace of hearing God's voice? Or how do we put together a group of them? And to illustrate this, I want to talk about a platypus with a kitar. Um, there are two parts necessary for us to really experience in real practice what it's like to hear God's voice. It's not one thing. You have to have the right attitude, which in this case for us will be the beaver with the electric guitar. You have to have the right attitudes. If you come to these practices with the wrong attitudes, it, it's not going to go. It's going nowhere fast. Okay? If you come to the Bible and be like, I can't really understand this, and why is this book so old? Or if you come to the Bible with this kind of like, I've read this a thousand times. Or if you come to the Bible with the wrong attitude, it's not going to produce what it's meant to produce. Either you will release yourself from the responsibility in your libertine attitude, or you'll fall into legalism and you'll end up feeling guilty and defeated and angry. You'll end up thinking you're reading the Bible to impress God rather than to receive from God. It will no longer be a means of grace, but it'll be a means of moralism, and it will not be life-giving at all. And the Word of God will not get impressed upon your heart. And those temptations— our, our, the church is full of them. Our hearts are full of them. But if you can come to God's word with the right attitude and with some of the right practices, which will be displayed for us by the, um, the duck with the, with the um, keyboard, then what you'll get is the right and proper union of them, which, you know, is the platypus with the guitar. But what it will be for us is the habits of grace, 
that come with the right practices and the right attitudes to produce receiving what the Holy Spirit has for us. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's talk about attitudes first. Attitude number one. The purpose of hearing God's voice is knowing God. The purpose of hearing God's voice is knowing God. It is not to memorize the Bible. It is not to get a good Christian education. It is not to be able to quote verses at church so people think that you're good. It's, it's not so that God will think you're fantastic because you memorized something or because you read something. The purpose of hearing God's voice is knowing God, right? The Bible itself, God has spoken and shown this to us. He said, in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, I consider everything a loss, including his religious PhD. You realize he was, a, he was a, a Sadducee on the highest possible level, so he had his PhD and he had the whole Bible memorized, okay? That's what we're talking about. He's done a lot of stuff with, like, the Word, okay? And yet he said this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, which includes all his legalism. It also includes all his Bible knowledge. If that Bible knowledge was not something that allowed him to receive the grace of God and to know God, it would be worthless. He finds it worthwhile because of its purpose, which is that God has spoken and shown himself. And through it, he can know God. In fact, Jesus said that was the whole purpose of his coming. At the end of, you know, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he says in John 17, he says, this is eternal life. And you could put in there real spirituality. That's what Jesus means. That they, that is all of humanity, may know you, that is God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That is, God, the way God has most clearly spoken and shown himself, his most perfect word, that they would know his word, Jesus, and because through him they would know God. And when all is said and done in the Bible, when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, the thing that so marks our existence there, the thing that will be so unlike now, in the book of Hebrews he says this, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. This is, this is the voice of God speaking, right? He says, God is saying, this is the covenant or the agreement I will make with all the house of Israel. That in, in this context, he means all believers. Declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That's a quotation from Jeremiah, right? And he says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He's saying, ultimately, what's the ultimate goal of all things? The ultimate goal of all things is that we will be in the presence of God and so experience his speaking and showing of himself that everyone will know him. That is the great end for which God has created and redeemed everything, that we would know him. That is the reason we seek to hear God's voice. No other. If you ever open a Bible or listen to the gospel or think about Jesus, where that is not the end, stop and go back to what Jesus has invited you to, that they may know him and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And only when you start again there might you proceed. The second is understanding the Bible's words. That is, um, evangelicals are fond of saying the Bible is the Word of God, and that's tr totally true. It's a little bit imprecise. The Bible is the Word of God written. And the reason why sometimes we delineate is because there are at least two other words of God. Now, I'm not going to talk about God's Word through a prophetic voice right now. That's in the Bible. I believe in it. That's not what I'm talking about right now. Uh, because I'm talking about how God's words stack on each other, okay? And the Bible has at least 
three words in it. That is, the Bible is the inscripturation of the witness of how God is redeeming and saving and loving and changing humanity, which is the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation. The Bible is witnessing to that. And the gospel becomes the gospel in God's word in flesh or incarnate in the man Jesus Christ. See, if you know that, Jesus, remember Jesus said, I'm in every passage of the Bible. They're all about me, he said. Right? And the gospel is in every passage of the Bible because it's what God's been doing since the very beginning. And so when you read the Bible, we should be reading the Bible as the way God is explaining, giving context, working out, telling stories, pointing us to its the message of his heart, which is the good news of his redemption and transformation and ordering and sovereignty over the whole world, which is accomplished most fully in Jesus, the one we're reading to know. If you don't have that attitude right, you're going to read the Bible wrong. There's this one really heartbreaking passage where Jesus is talking in John's gospel where there's these people and they like literally have the Bible memorized. They're, they're all, they're all um, Pharisees. And they know the Bible so well, and they read it, and they literally have little boxes with verses tied onto themselves, and like they're all about God, the Word of God written, right? But they don't see that the Word of God written is witnessing to the gospel, and that the gospel is witnessing to the Messiah, the incarnate Christ. And so Jesus says this to them. He says, you guys, you diligently study the scriptures because you think in them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. And you're reading them in such a way that you refuse to come to me to have life. And so we have to read the Bible, the word of God written, to hear the gospel, the word of salvation offered, to see it in the word of Christ, the most perfect and comprehensive revelation and speaking showing of God for our salvation so that we can know him. Now, one example of how sometimes we read the Bible wrong and so won't come to him and believe is uh, the use particularly of educated and literate people with the concept of reading something critically, okay? Now, I constantly feel like the professor in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where when people start talking about reason and logic, I, I start thinking, what do they teach in the schools that these days? This has nothing to do with reason and logic. Um, <clears throat> there's this whole movement education. I was an education major in all my in-laws and parents were all educators, and um, it became very evident more than a decade ago that the whole critical thinking movement was really an excuse not to teach kids facts. Because I don't know if you've talked with college students these days or young adults, they don't know anything about logic or critical thinking. So I don't know what they're learning, right? And what critical, what critical has, means now is criticizing. That's what it means. It means you don't have to know anything about anything. You don't have to actually proceed from premises to conclusions. You don't have to know what modus ponens is. You don't have to know about any of that stuff. All you have to do is cock your hips and be pissy. Right? Students from all over the world come to America to study and notice how Americans blabber on as undergraduate students who know nothing at professors who've been studying their subject for 30 years, as though they have anything worth saying in that context. Indian and Chinese students are just kind of like aghast. They said, they're like, what, 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 what in God's name do you think you're doing? And most of the comments are logically illiterate. Right? My, my daughter, 
who's 13, is taking intermediate logic now because we had to homeschool her in order for her to learn any logic, right? And it, like, she talks now in like literate sentences and stuff that is supposed to be impossible for a junior high person to think. Like, she just kind of like waltzes through, having studied it for like 15 minutes, okay? And so we, let me give you an example of this. When I was in seminary, I was writing a commentary on the book of Jonah because it was an assignment. And I was reading a um, unbelieving biblical commentary on the book of Jonah. And there was a particular place where it was, where the the, the argument in the commentary was, yeah, religious people believe this about the book of Jonah, but this Hebrew word really means this, and so it really means that, and it's really not what the religious people think, right? And this is a guy who taught at like Duke or something and had multiple PhDs and blah, 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 right? So I looked at his argument. His argument was based on the idea that in order to really understand that word, you had to see, you had to see its root in Ugaritic, which was an Acadian, like, or no, Akkadian, I think it was, right? And he's like, if you understand the root in Akkadian, you can see this means here, blah, 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 right? So the first question, of course, of anybody that knows anything logically about linguistics is, are there any occurrences of this word in the mother language? Are there any occurrences in the Hebrew Bible of this word in Hebrew that we could study its usage and know what it means? There were 12! And when you looked at those 12 usages in the actual mother tongue that happened within a few centuries of the actual usage instead of 500 years at another time, it turns out the word means exactly what everybody has always thought has ever meant. Exactly what religious people have always believed. But we love so much to criticize. And here's why. Because who's really getting criticized when you read the Bible? You are. That's what's happening. There's supposed to be critical questions being asked when you read the Bible. God, how am I doing this just like these people are? That's the critical question you're supposed to be asking. And so therefore, and you'd be like, well, you want me to just read it like without even questioning anything, right? That's a smokescreen. You're not being honest, first of all, with that question. Because nobody does that. Okay, even the fundamentalists think that the locusts in Revelation are helicopters, okay? Nobody does that. And so just use a different word. And the word I would suggest is just inquisitiveness. Wanting to know everything about it. But with a kind of interested expectancy, rather than a pissy closed-offness. Because how well does it go when somebody needs to be confronted, and they think the purpose of this conversation is for them to confront you? It doesn't go very well. And so we can't be corrected, and we can't see what's there, and we close off our minds to what would astonish our souls because we get hung up in this little thing here, and well, why did he use that verb, and why was it blah, 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 when the message of the sentence is so clear if we just read it and open ourselves to it. And it turns out to, here's the thing that's so weird, is that's really dumb, right? To say, well, I'm going to read it critically, and by critical, critic, to mean criticism, and then just to be pissy. That's really dumb. And yet, Christians fall into this all the time, as well as people who don't want to believe the scriptures. So your attitude needs to be to come to the Bible with inquisitiveness, curiosity. Ask the questions, but ask them with the expectation that you're going to get taught something. You're going to get schooled here. And in that, you're going to get astonished. And every once in a while, you're going to ask a question that's going to be truly critical of nature, and you're going to get hung up on something, and you're going to have to study it more deeply. 
That's what I'm here for. That's what other people are here for. That's what resources are here for. That can happen. But what, is it, what happens when we start looking at the Bible with inquisitiveness instead of criticalness is that we put ourselves all importantly in what Jonathan Edwards called the path of allurement. The path of allurement. Um, we don't use the word allurement. It's kind of like the word affections. It was used a lot more in the 18th century, but Edwards says it this way. Endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. It's perfectly clear, right? Okay, let me give you a negative example of this. Um, I don't ride, I don't spend time alone with any of the younger women, any of the women staff at all on the staff team. I don't drive anywhere. I won't drive to Chick-fil-A, which is like two minutes from here, to get free breakfast with a female on our staff team. I won't do it. And it's not because they're not great. It's not because I don't enjoy the conversation. It's not because they're not trustworthy and I'm not trustworthy. It's for none of those reasons. It's to make sure that I do not put myself inordinately in the path of allurement because men and women are made to bond with each other. Just made to bond with each other. And so I, I create all kinds of things in my life to keep myself out of the path of allurement where I shouldn't be in it. Psalm 1 is all about this, right? Blessed he who doesn't sit in the seat of mockers, stand in the way of sinners, who gets out of their path so he doesn't get drawn into it, right? Now positively though, it's not just, that's just not, not just a negative virtue, it's a positive one, right? You can get yourself into the path of allurement to reignite a good appetite. Let me give you uh, an example of this. So when Alexi and I were married for about a year and a half, we in like really hated each other's guts. Like to the point where we were daydreaming about the other person dying. Like Alexi would like sometimes imagine that I would get in such a vicious argument about Arminianism versus Calvinism in the lunchroom at the seminary that somebody would stab me in the neck with a fork and I'd bleed out on the spot. Okay. I once literally was in a systematic theology class and was thinking that the life insurance payout if Alexi was killed traveling at Abbott Laboratories was two million dollars and I could get a PhD in England and marry somebody who was truly sweet. Okay, literally, I just wanted you to understand where we were, okay? I went, so I was taking a counseling, my, ironically, I was taking my pastoral counseling class at the time. So I went and talked with Brian Mayer, who was the professor. And I explained him the situation in about 10 minutes, and he said, but Nick, she's your, she's your wife, you love her, you want her to be the mother of your children, to which I replied, Brian, I don't think you've been listening for the last 10 minutes. Let's try again, right? <clears throat> but what he said to me was, he said, listen, I know where you are, and I know the only reason, because I told him, the only reason I'm not divorcing her is because she belongs to Jesus, and I don't dare cross him like that. It's just, I just know it's wrong. I can't do it. But I would love to, right? And he said, here's what you need to do. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take her to lunch every week for no less than 45 minutes, and you're just going to talk. And I was like, li and literally the month before that, we'd balanced our checkbook, and we'd made it by $11. And we're going to go out to eat four times now, right? I was like, listen, all we're going to do is start yelling at Einstein's bagels. That's all that's going to happen. He's like, just do it. Shut your face and do it, right? At which point I had to hear an application of the Word of God from someone else because my own Bible reading wasn't doing it, right? And so we did it. And Alexi was like, really? That's what he said? I don't think that's going to work either. And so we went out to Einstein's Bagels and paid $10 for two sandwiches and we talked for 45 minutes. And listen, to this day, to this day, I still cannot believe how fast I started to like her again. 
It was, it was like, it was like four lunches. It's one month, right? I, I, I just, it, it just didn't take very long to be like, oh, I remember you. Yeah, I like you, right? Like, because I was studying 14 hours a day, and she was working second shift, and I was, I was doing stuff during first shift, and so we would see each other, and then I worked weekends when she was available, and she didn't have any girlfriends, and my guy friends were idiots, and like, it was just, it wasn't working, and all of a sudden, the minute I stepped for a minute back into the path of allurement, I felt my appetite start to rise again. And fighting yourself and fighting for desiring God many times in your life, especially when you don't want anything to do with him, will be deeply wrapped up into putting yourself back into the path of allurement, which includes starting to listen to and hear what he's spoken and shown about himself, hearing his voice. And when you begin to hear his voice, Again, you, you can come to the place where you're like, I, I've never known you, but I like this. Or, oh, I remember you. And if you have those attitudes, those four attitudes, um, you, you will come to this with a kind of attitude necessary to receive God's gracious gift. Hearing God's voice becomes an ungracious thing that we work for when we come to it with the wrong attitude. We're coming to know God, to hear God's words in the Bible, in the gospel, in his Christ, with an inquisitive spirit, seeking to put ourselves in the path of allurement. And if we start there, it will, it will in many cases completely transform what we experience. Now, it also includes that we need to have gracious practices rather than moralistic practices. And whatever your practice of hearing God's voice, it should include these three things, okay? And once you have these three things in place and those attitudes, you, there's dozens of possible ways to hear, to engage with God's word and to hear God's voice, okay? So here are the three practices. One is taking it up and taking it in. You just have to read, you have to read the Bible. You have to just, you have to find ways to take in God's word. You need to come and listen to expositional preaching. You need to have Christian friendships where people will talk about Jesus. You need to Get a Bible and read it. You need to, like, you need to do stuff where you're taking it up and taking it in. Sometimes it's going to be like reading as much as you can. It's going to be like raking all the leaves together and jumping in. You need a broader perspective. Sometimes you need to dig and ask questions so that you can be astonished with what you find. Right? But you've got to take it up and take it in. The second thing is, is you need to warm yourself by the fire of meditation. Here's what I mean by that. When you dig in a little bit and you see something that's worthwhile, or you just see something that's true— you need to just stop and imagine that that truth is like a fire on a cold fall camping night, and you need to take time to warm yourself by it. There's so much there about you, about God, about life, about the world, and if you'll just chew on it for a little while and open yourself up to it and think it through a little bit and talk it over with a friend and Journal what comes to your mind, or something like that. If you take some time to let yourself be warmed by the fire of the truth, it will do something to you that nothing else can do. And if you read and study and then meditate on what you've just learned and then pray, it will totally transform the way you pray. There, I cannot tell you how different an experience to read the Bible, put it away, 
Get out your prayer list or something, pray that, and you're done. The difference between that and reading and studying and seeing, meditating on, and letting it work a little bit, warming yourself by it, and then out of that to pray. Those are two so different. Those are so different. And you will experience something very different. And your sense of allurement and appetite for God, um, meditation is part of getting in that path of allurement. And then third is, apply it to your heart, not your life. A lot of people talk about reading the Bible and applying it to your life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you were just screaming at your friend and like you read that something about gentleness, and you're like, oh, I need to apologize to my friend. That's totally fine. Like write it on your hand and like apologize to your friend later. But that's not the, what you're supposed to be doing. Okay? About 99% of your life, you're reacting. You're not doing really fully premeditated things. You're just being yourself. And that's one of the problems for a lot of us is you, you come to Christ and you're like, oh, I should be more Christian. And you read a bunch of Christian stuff and you're like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be like. And then what happens in your life is you're reacting 99% of the time. And you're like, I don't do this very well. I don't think I can do this. I think I should quit Christianity or something. It's not, that's not, that's not right. Okay? What has to happen is, like I said at the very beginning, the work of the Spirit— is to display and form the character and will of God in us. There is no shortcut for this. There is no like, I read the Bible, I wrote down these four applications for my life, I'm going to do those. No, what's going to happen is, over three years, you're going to have a list of 75,000 things you've written on there, and you're not going to remember half of them, and you're not going to do any of them. Because you're going to be overloaded and frenetic and No, what has to happen is when you meditate on that thing, you need to apply it to yourself, to your heart, to your character, to your being, to what you're really like. And in order to do that in faith, you need to open yourself up to God and ask him to reveal honest thoughts to you and think about what it would mean if you really believed this. And if you didn't believe in the whatever you told yourself so you didn't have to believe it, And if you were willing to lay down some of your idols in order to believe it, what would it mean for who you are? Or even more than what you would do, what sort of person would it create? What would your affections be like? What would you care about? What would you be willing to fight for? What kind of person would you be? That is what it means to apply the Bible. And as you do that, you don't need a list of 6,500 things you have to do. You will start reacting different. You'll start reacting out of a different formation of character, and it will progressively look more like Jesus. What he wants and who he is will start to flow out of you, and then you won't be trying hard. You won't be like, oh, I gotta be Christian, I gotta be Christian, I gotta be Christian. You'll be a Christian, and then you'll just be— And it won't be as hard as it used to be to be gentle. It won't be as hard as it used to be to tell the truth. It won't be as hard as it used to be to be pure. It just won't be as hard as it used to be because you'll be progressively changing into a different person. Because the work of the Spirit, through the means of grace, inhabiting our habits of grace, is to display and form God's character and will in us. Does that make sense? Let me end with just a couple um, examples of what this might look like. There could be dozens— if you do those, if you put those attitudes together with those practices, it will produce change. As much as a guitar-playing beaver meeting a keyboard-playing duck in a 
smoky bar that fall in love will produce a guitar playing platypus. So, the right attitudes and the right practices when put together will produce habits of grace that connect us with the means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses. Okay, here's, let me give you just a couple examples though. Um, Reading the Bible should be preeminent among our ways. There's two ways it should be preeminent in our ways of receiving God's Word. Listening to preaching in the gathered public church and reading the Bible. The reason I add reading the Bible, though I wouldn't do it if I was preaching in a rural place in India, is because we're all kings. We all have the money, power, response. We have way more money, and so therefore the power that we hold, we have to learn to hold justly. Because we could accumulate a pile of money for ourselves. We could go through a lot of partners if we darn well felt like it. And we could accumulate a bunch of stuff for ourselves. And so we ought to learn from Deuteronomy 17 that we ought to get a Bible. It wouldn't be bad for us to copy it down. And we should read it all the days of our lives to be careful to do, do everything written in it. And I do think ourselves reading the Bible in this culture with our economic capacity and with printed Bibles, we should have a Bible. We should read it. And if you don't have one, you can take one that is in the pews right there. Okay? And if the only Bible you have is, have is a King James Bible, and you're not like schooled in Shakespearean English, you can take one of those, and you'll have two, and you can read one in English that we use today. Okay? But in addition to that, there are lots of other ways in which we can hear the Word of God respoken, mediated through Christian books. For example, we have a, pod, a leadership podcast where we, like, we do teaching, and you can like subscribe to it on your phone and listen to it. And we try to focus on what God is teaching so that if you can't, you shouldn't read the Bible while you're driving 40 minutes to work, right? You can listen to the Bible on audio, but you can also listen to other stuff too, right? And any way that you can get at the Word of God mediated back to you is going to be nourishing, right? Secondly, reading the Word. There are some people that, like, you're really afraid of the Bible. And listen, one of the biggest things that breaks my heart about the ministry at High Point right now is we have really, really good people teaching in our growth classes, and they're virtually empty. It's unbelievable. Like, there are people with like 40 years of biblical experience. There are people who've been seminary professors, who have PhDs in Christian education, but are totally down to earth, meeting with three people back there. Who would love to like mentor you in seeing God's voice and God's word. They'd love to do that, and just nobody goes. And it—honestly, like, I hurt for them for all the prep they do, and I hurt for a lot of you because I know there are lots of people in this room that it would be like being under a fountain— but there's just something about how your day's going, how you planned your schedule, and you just, you just can't really make, and you just don't go, and, and it just breaks my heart because I know that if you built that habit of grace, I think that God would use that means of grace to enormously nourish you. Right? Some of you have read the Bible so much, you're like, Nick, listen, if I read Philippians one more time, I think I'm going to like go insane, okay? I, like, I've read the Bible a lot, okay? Listen, um, so there are these new journals out. This one's for Romans, okay? You know what it's for? It's so you can copy the book down. You know why that's cool? Because it'll slow you down and you'll see things you've never seen before. I used to tell people that one of the reasons I was so glad they made me take Greek in seminary was not because I learned Greek, but because I had to read the Bible slow enough because I was learning a foreign language. I think I could have learned the same stuff if I'd learned Italian and read the Bible in Italian, right? Is that I had to pay—because I had to pay attention to every word because I had to translate it, and I had to pay attention to every ending and every verbal mood and all that, because I had to conjugate every word. I had to listen to every ending, and I had to see every conjunction. I had to see all of it. And you can actually replicate that for yourself if you copy the Bible down. Just get a book, notebook and just read a verse of Romans and write it down. And you will find words popping out. 
because you're writing it. We know in, in collegiate studies, they've looked at students who just listened to lectures, did nothing, students who typed during lectures, and students who wrote longhand in lectures. And the students who write out longhand in lectures remember significantly more than the other two categories. There's something about what it does to you when you hear, see, think, and write. There are practices for all of us if we think through where we are and where we want to go. So for me, I'm translating through the book of Romans and writing notes. So I'm starting with the Greek text, I translate it out, and then I write my notes because I'm open in two or three years to preach through Romans. But right now, I'm trying to go slow enough that it affects me. And I can't tell you the stuff I've seen. I've read Romans maybe a hundred times. I've studied it through three or four times. But translating through it and going that slow, just the first chapter just has astonished me in a way I've never seen. And lastly, go, taking the time to impress, talk, and tie, like it said in Deuteronomy 6. Um, one of the things that Vince has been saying about children's ministry is, I don't know if you know this, but about 80% of kids from evangelical churches when they go to college stop going to church, either for a portion or for as long as we can measure right now. But here's what you also—here's what people don't know. Most families who were church families went to church once to twice a month, and only about 9% of kids say they heard their parents talk about their faith. I think about that. What's the retention rate? 20%. What's the percent that heard their parents talk about their faith? 9%. Now, I would be willing to wager that if that 9% was 100% we were measuring, our retention rate would be a heck of a lot higher than 20%. Do you know the number one indicator of college graduates' political views are? The number one indicator? To go to UW, do you know the number one indicator of their political views when they get out is? Their parents' political views. It's number one indicator. And they do a good job of trying to change a lot of them for about half the students, right? Purple state. The same is true about faith. There is a huge difference between teaching your kids the faith and cramming it down their throats. Do not let your mind go into the temptation that teaching your kids the truth is cramming faith down their throats. It isn't. You are supposed to. God has explicitly said, impress this upon your children. And in doing so, you will learn so much. Lexi and I are teaching our kids the catechism right now. And we're like reciting the catechism and doing hand motions to remember it. And like we've got like five or six of them memorized now. And I'm—and I have to—like Lexi and I have to explain what this means to a four-year-old girl, a nine-year-old boy, a 12-year-old girl, and an almost 14-year-old girl. Sound fun? It's fun most of the time. We laugh a lot. They ask really good questions. And like I'm trying to figure out, okay— does four-year-old get it? Does 14-year-old get it? Like, and it, it, it's expanding me because I have to explain these, right? At High Point, we're doing something called the Family Challenge 2017. It's for all the families of the church. Um, you can sign up if you just, just take somebody's kid and you can sign up, you know? Um, <laughs> and here's the, here's the crazy challenge, okay? You, you won't believe this, okay? The high standards, okay? One, come to church— every week, or every week here in town. Here's why that's important. I don't know if you know this, but we have like 200-something kids in the, in the children's ministry, but they're not the same kids. We have like two different groups of 200 kids, and they come every other week, at most. And so kids will come one week, 
And then the next time they come back, they've missed a week, and the teachers are like, wait, who was here last week? And do you remember this? And no, I wasn't there for that. And, and so, especially if right now at your house, you're in the 91% that doesn't talk about your faith in front of your kids, you can really change how much they get of the faith if they have continuity just at church, right? You, you drop them off, go get a coffee. You don't even come to church. I don't care. I mean, I care. But like, if it's one or the other, I'd rather have the kids in there and you there with it, because then they all start telling you to come to church. The second thing is, um, do some kind of family spiritual thing together once a week for about 15 minutes. I know, it's insane, right? But it's amazing how once you start, it's like family game night. You have to, you shut off the TV and play family game. Like, yeah, it took a lot to get the kids to shut up and do it. But once you do it, you're laughing, you're having a great time. And spiritual family devotions, family worship is actually just like that. And then thirdly, spending 15 minutes of time with each of your kids where there is spiritual openness and discussion each week, right? That's, that, this is this crazy new standard, right? Come to church, spend some time with your kid each week, just 15 minutes, and have one family spiritual devotional event. But that's actually not just for them and you passing on for them that they should be hearing God's word. It's actually as you teach and as you lead, as you impress the word of God on others, the word of God will be impressed on you. Those are some examples. But what this ultimately com comes back to is, are we A, willing to come to God's way of helping us with some faith to have a habit of grace in which we come with the right attitudes and some of the basics of the right practices and bring them together in something that we really do. Believing not that if we do them, God will like us, or if we do them, we'll be righteous so we can judge other people. But believing that if we do them, the Holy Spirit has been waiting and longing and is always willing to display and form in us the character and will of God. To show us how to believe the gospel and to show us what it means to know Christ. So that not only will we experience certain experiences of transcendence in that, that will be incredibly emotionally and personally and intellectually fulfilling, but the transcendent one will work through us so that what we were always meant to bring to each other and to all of creation will flow through us. That we will not just like what we create, but that all of creation, that we will be what we were meant to be. People who experience the character of God and live in the will of God. Because that is what spirituality means to Jesus. And it should be to us too. Let's pray. Father, we, we really want to— we really want to be people who— um, who know Christ, who preach the gospel to ourselves, who, like Christopher, when we get cancer, what we do is we say, man, I can—the the tense and mood of the, the voice of the verb in this verse is just what I needed. And we can hear you speak to us through what you've spoken, and that we can be just really incredibly changed by it. We pray that you'd give us the right attitudes, that you'd renew our attitude, that you'd renew our practices, and that you'd draw us passionately back into the way of allurement so that you can awaken or reawaken in us an appetite to hear your voice. Pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.